Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and I'm really glad you've joined Democracy Sausage this week because I reckon you'll find the discussion particularly rewarding. As always, I'm joined by the political scientist, Dr. Maria Teflaga from ANU's School of Politics and International Relations. Maria, good day there. Hello, Mark. And I see that you've had a bit of uh, trouble on Twitter this week. From from what I've been able to see uh, on Twitter, that uh, you 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 congratulated the Prime Minister earlier last week for channeling his his inner Bob Hawke, and um, the reaction to that wasn't very pleasant. Um, uh, you got a lot of <laughs> criticism for that. Do you want to um, sort of explain to our listeners what was going on there? Well, it is interesting, actually, because, I mean, a bit of the context here, Maria, is that on Thursday, the Prime Minister did that press conference where he um, announced free childcare for all. It was a pretty extraordinary reversal uh, that in that particular policy space, of course, a, a major reversal. The, uh, the coalition had previously des- described free childcare as, as basically socialism, but here it was delivering it. Of course, it also comes on top of all the other things that they've had to do, all the, you know, what is it, roughly $320 billion worth of spending and, and loan guarantees between the government and the Reserve Bank. Um, so, you know, a really quite extraordinary uh, reversal. And it, it was accompanied by um, a lot of quite interesting uh, words or rhetoric from the Prime Minister. Uh, he thanked Sally McManus, the ACTU Secretary, and other union leaders for their cooperation, their, 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 the spirit in which all of these things were being done. He talked about togetherness. He talked about the strength of liberal democracies and how Australia as a strong liberal democracy would show the world how it can best do, uh, respond to this kind of crisis. He, 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 uh, he said, uh, in, in reference to McManus, he said, you know, um, fantastic cooperation and said, you know, there's no blue teams, no red teams, no bosses or union leaders. There's just Australians and together we'll get through this. And it struck me, if you take the sort of policy substance and the rhetoric around it, it struck me that that was much closer to the kinds of things that Bob Hawke might have said, or indeed other Labor Prime Ministers, but that whole bringing Australia together rhetoric in particular. 
than Scott Morrison ever thought he would ever be, uh, and indeed that any of us as observers ever thought he would ever be. And that was the observation I made on Twitter that that he was, um, that, you know, this was bringing out a part of Scott Morrison that perhaps he didn't even know was there. We certainly didn't. Um, but yeah, the reaction on Twitter was was visceral and uh, explosive. Really, there were people who instantly and wrongly in my submission saw that as a direct comparison between Morrison and Hawke or suggested that in some way that it was this sort of, you know, egregious insult of Bob Hawke's legacy when in fact, uh, if anything, it was a, a sort of a, a veiled criticism of the past position of Scott Morrison and the recognition that this crisis has required him to junk all of that sort of divisiveness and 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 go to the real strength of Australia which is the full breadth of its community rather than just sections of it. Yeah, I mean I think it's been a really interesting pivot to observe in um, the Prime Minister, one which he's uh, wobbled at quite a few times uh, up until quite recently, because he he has been an extraordinarily um, effective, uh, divisive and partisan um, figure, right? He's, he's very good at sort of, sort of seeing what the edge on an issue is and is extremely good at simplifying things down to I guess, you know, a very effective sound bites. And as we've sort of discussed on this podcast in the past, you know, um, you know, this government has had a tendency to sort of think of everything as as a political game and to and mm. to and to sort of view politics and do politics through that lens. But as you've sort of basically said, this kind of a crisis, you can't you can't you can't behave in that kind of way. Like, not mm. only is it grossly ineffective, it's just unconscionable. Um, and so, um, it is interesting that perhaps some of the anger at that sort of earlier way of doing politics has has rebounded on you when you sort of rightly noted that the prime minister has sort of moved away from that kind of language. It was interesting. One person even chipped me saying, look, I agree with what you're saying, but you shouldn't be surprised about the emotional response. And my, my, I didn't sort of take it any further, but my, my instinct in response to that was to say, well, hang on, so you, I, you're actually saying that you believe I'm correct here, uh, but rather than actually go out there into the onto Twitter and say that, you have a crack at me for, you know, for saying something that might be a bit inflammatory. Well, I mean, you know, it doesn't really say a lot for the... The, the the depth of uh, analysis or nuanced argument on Twitter, which I guess we shouldn't be that surprised about, but um, I don't know. I, I think there's this. It, perhaps it is a product of a very polarized polity that we now have. That there's so much pent up distaste for the prime minister and and his party over a period of time that even if and I'm just talking about if here, uh, you know, don't don't misunderstand me, but even if it adopted every single policy of the other side, that would still be, you know, it would still be not enough for the people who are of that particular political persuasion that want those alternative policies. They would still not accept it because, in a sense, politics is an emotional business as well as a rational business. I'd say it was more emotional than rational a lot of the time. Yeah. 
Well, I guess that this proves it, doesn't it? Yeah. Let's um let's bring in our other guests now. I'm sure they've got views on this and many other things. Um, Dr. Anna Greta Hunter is not just a cardiologist; she's also an ANU Human Futures Fellow from the College of Health and Medicine, and some of her work involves considering existential risks. Hi, Anna Greta. There's a few of them around at the moment. How would you actually define an existential risk? Hi, Mark. It's great to be with you again. Um, Existential risks, I think, is increasingly topical at the moment. Uh, Existential, I guess, comes back to the core of human existence and the questions that are confronting us, perhaps starting last year through the bushfire season and really getting us to think deeply about the human effects of climate change. Uh, but there's a list of, uh, of existential risks, and there's about 10 that have been identified by a group called the Commission for the Human Future. And that list includes environmental degradation and loss of uh, fundamental things that keep us alive, like water. Uh, but along that list of existential risks is pandemics. Um, and there are other things on the list that we haven't got to yet, including things like war. Uh, So it's a great time to be thinking about what risks uh, are faced, not just as an individual, but as a society and how we might best respond to them. Yes. And what's particularly interesting, I guess, is how those risks, when they materialise, how they um, make, what what changes they uh, force on a society. And we can get into a little bit of that because uh, we're seeing in real time changes being forced on our society and indeed on communities right around the world. And it will be interesting to see which of those turn out to be lasting and the, the extent to which things are able to go back to, um, you know, to, to, to the way they were. And I guess that will, uh, that's not something we can know at this stage. Let's also bring in our other guest. I'm delighted to welcome an old colleague from the press gallery. Crikey's perspicacious politics editor and an unfailing friend to greyhounds everywhere, Dr. Bernard Keane. How are you, Bernard? I'm good, thank you. And your greyhounds? Uh, she's, uh, she's doing very well. She's, uh, loving this, uh, period of lockdown, which brings her greater time with the humans. So thumbs up from her for, um, for our public health policies. Yeah, that's the case for pets all over the place, including uh, my little schnauzer, uh, very happy about the fact that, uh, you know, I'm pretty much home most of the time and, uh, that means that he's um, looking for my attention a lot of the time. So not always great for productivity, but uh, good for the good for the human spirit. Now, Bernard, when you and I regularly trudged the, the halls of power, uh, all the talk from the coalition was of fiscal tightening and balanced budgets and union thuggery and these types of things. What's happened? I mean, <laughs> it's, it, you don't hear much of that at the moment. It's, it's the world turned upside down, isn't it? Um, mm. Particularly on fiscal policy. I mean, we sat through all those years of, uh, of coalition criticism of, of Labor's response to the, to, the, to the financial crisis. They voted against it. Uh, I recall even Malcolm Turnbull saying that uh, he'd support the first Rudd stimulus package, but of course they would have done it differently. He had to caveat mm. that support and, uh, and they refused to back it, um, uh, the, the second much larger stimulus package. That's all gone by the board now. Um, uh, we may not be hearing about Labor's debt and deficit disaster for many years to come, given that um, <laughs> with at about $130 billion, just the third tranche of the, of the, the government's rescue packages is a, a good whack of the entire sum of Labor's um, uh, deficit spending while it was in power. So um, in, you know, in one fell swoop, the coalition has, has, uh, has outdistanced Labor. And um, 
you know, I can't see the fiscal position recovering anytime soon. I mean, the government's got to get back to got to get back to surplus in order to start paying down that debt. And I think, as Wayne Swan found, uh, Josh Feinberg's going to discover that the recovery in the economy does not translate into a re- recovery uh, in revenue. So, uh, well, let alone a snapback. Well, the, the, look, I think I think there'll be a snapback in some sections of the economy, but I think for large parts of it, uh, it's going to be a long, long, slow grind rather than a snapback. And when it comes to company tax revenues, uh, I think Josh Frydenberg, as I suspect Treasury is already telling him, uh, is not going to is not going to see any snapback. So the return to the return to <clears throat> having just narrowly missed out on a surplus. Due to uh, the bushfires and uh, and the virus crisis, the government's now got to do it all again and begin that long, slow process of going back to surplus. Then they can start paying off the remarkable uh, amount of money that they've uh, rightly uh, accumulated uh, just over just over such an incredibly short space of time. I mean, that's the other amazing thing about this is, I mean, it took months and months between Kevin Rudd's first and second stimulus packages. I think it was. It was 18 days between the first and the third stimulus packages for uh, for Scott Morrison. That just illustrates how quickly this whole crisis has moved, and the policy response to it has moved. And and in fact, if there was a any sort of lag, it was really in the uh, period between when it was recognised that a stimulus package would be necessary and when that first stimulus package arrived. There was a fair bit of uh, you know chin chin scratching and uh, preparation that went into that, and it was a a reasonably precise package, you know, seventeen point six billion dollars, and uh, um, you know the government had been using language like it was going to be measured and proportionate mm. and these kinds of things. Um, really, by the time uh, by the time the second one came along, you know, you were you were in what Hunter S. Thompson might have referred to as million pound shit hammer territory. Um, you know, just throw every single thing you can you can throw at it, really, because that's how you know how big the scale of this thing is. Uh, so, really, it is going to be hard to imagine politics going back to not just in terms of budget management, but in terms of the kind of um, budget and economic discourse that surrounds the transaction of politics that has defined the transaction of Australian politics for so long. Now, it's hard to see most of that language coming back. I think that that first package will be the last kind of, be the last symbol of that that era that is now finished. I mean, that, that package was about stimulus. It was about encouraging investment by firms. It was about putting a little bit of stimulus into, into a stagnant economy. It would have been a really good package a week before it was actually released. By the time it actually was released, we had actually moved into the virus world. And the virus world is a completely different one with completely different needs, um, as the government obviously realised pretty quickly. So, no, we're not going to go back to that era. And, uh, you know, the, the moment that second package came out, it illustrated that we've moved into a completely different world in fiscal and economic terms. And we need to change the language, don't we? And we need to stop talking about stimulus and start talking about either hibernation or support. You know, the economics of this is so very, very different. We can't we can't get people out there doing more, making more, shopping more. We need people to stay home. And so uh, the language around this needs to radically change, which is why you're exactly right, that, that that first stimulus should be the very last one for quite a long time. Do we actually know whether or not our political leaders really do believe in this concept of a of a snapback, or is this something they're rhetorically sort of saying as they prepare us for the reality that 
there is very likely many unknown unknowns about what will happen with the virus, how that will affect the economy, how that will change the shape of the economy going forward, which may be good, which may be bad. Well, I think it's a very good question about uh, you know about the snapback. It, it strikes me that it is it is a, a probably a, a a rhetorical device that is designed to um, frame and justify as much as possible a return to some sort of fiscal discipline. You know, there's the, some sort of levels of fiscal discipline pre-crisis. Um, whether, of course, it works is another matter. I mean, whether it works as a rhetorical device, let alone whether it's the right thing policy-wise, I guess, although those things are both unknowns. But a government that has made its its um, its whole reputation, really, until this crisis on this whole notion of fiscal rectitude, of balancing in the budget and delivering a surplus, of delivering tax cuts, of being for small government, of being against unions, all of these sorts of things. It's had such a fan, you know, utterly sort of amazing policy shape shift across all of these areas, uh, and it's looking for a path back and. Um, you know, when you when you're giving people free childcare, when you've doubled the unemployment benefit, uh, something that should have happened a long time ago, and this is, I'd be interested in your thoughts, anyone's thoughts really on this. But when you've doubled the unemployment benefit, I mean, you've effectively recognised that it was unconscionably low, and when a whole lot of people were about to be dumped onto the unemployment queue, they weren't going to be able to live on forty dollars a day, and. These were, you know, I mean, these were people who were working up until, you know, this moment and um, suddenly they were going to be put well below the poverty line. So, I don't know, I think the snapback is as much as anything else a kind of a rhetorical, uh, you know, piece of scaffold to justify where they are at the moment. And I think that's the space we really need to be exploring. So snapback, I, I think, is a, probably a fantasy that we can imagine that life goes back in some way to how things were previously most of the, the work that's been done looking at the experience of pandemics in hu human history suggests that that's not the case, that the world we go back to is something that's quite different. So what lies ahead is probably something we should be spending time uh, considering and imagining. And I, I agree completely with you about New Start, uh, Mark. Uh, it's so good to see the government actually beginning to provide people with adequate support uh, when they need it. It might be that the new world that we have is one in which we take care of each other more convincingly than we've done before. Um, it's an extraordinary opportunity for some transformative change. Well, remember that the government's view is that uh, the the increase in new start or the additional allowance is only temporary. That it is the idea is it will go back down when uh, when this crisis is over. Now, I find it very difficult to believe that the government is going to be able to do that. And that tough decision, if they, if they ever contemplate it, is emblematic of a range of tough decisions they're going to have to make about withdrawing elements of their spending. Not so much in terms of, uh, you know, are we going to have free childcare forever? No, we're not. But at what point do you withdraw those benefits? Because any, any point that you decide on is going to be arbitrary. There's going to be some people who will, who will miss out. There's going to be some people who have got lucky. As a result, there will always be an element of unfairness. At what point do you actually do that? So that's one set of decisions around withdrawing the immediate survival uh, measures that the government's put in place. Obviously, the government's going to be keen to do it as soon as possible because of the sheer cost of it. Um, but there are both political and economic ramifications of the timing of that. That's one set of decisions. The other set of decisions, of course, is going forward, 
what the you know what the broad fiscal policy is actually going to be. How do you get back to surplus? Uh, how do you start paying off that debt? It's you know fortunately at extraordinarily historically low interest rates that the government's been able to borrow at. But even so, uh, it's going to want to move back to uh, to surplus as quickly as possible and start paying down that debt. And therefore, that raises the question: How's it going to do that? Is it going to cut spending? Is it going to increase taxes? Is it going to close tax loopholes? Uh, there's already people coming forward with all sorts of suggestions from from both sides uh, of uh, of politics, but that's that's a that's a whole debate that is going to need to be had afresh uh, once we're kind of through that immediate post crisis period of some sort of return to you know the new normal, whatever that new normal looks like, but but what will become the new normal? I mean, one another way of sort of thinking with about that, you know, and I, I agree with what you've said, Bernard, is that. I mean, basically since the GFC, we have been having a growing conversation about inequality in this country and the way our policy settings kind of operate in terms of how we distribute tax dollars to different parts of society. And in, and in recent times, that has become increasingly about generational inequality or perceived generational inequality. And this virus, which also has differing generational impacts for those who are most at risk and the sacrifices being made by young people to protect our most vulnerable, which I entirely agree with, but it does sort of hang a lantern on the fact that young people are being asked to to sacrifice a lot in terms of their in terms of their personal freedoms and their earning capacity and to snap back to the world that we were in before i'm not sure if that's going to be politically tenable when so much of state support right now is geared towards helping or or, or basically propping up the lifestyles of far more wealthy older Australians through vehicles like franking credits or negative gearing or other kinds of tax arrangements that are disproportionately beneficial to people who already have wealth and assets. That's a, that's and, a, that's a really good point that you raised there, Maria, I think in terms of the, um, you know, the, the sort of, I guess, the nature of our society, our, our, our assessment of the role of the state, of the role of government, all of these things have, have suddenly been uh, put under the spotlight. And I think uh, we should consider those more. We'll take a quick break and come back and talk about those. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
Welcome back, Bernard. Uh, just before the break, Maria was talking about uh, the, the sacrifice that young people are, are being asked to make in terms of personal freedoms, I suppose, in the short term. But, uh, you know, this is much more structural, I guess, in terms of uh, the long-term economic implications for many people, including including the shutdown of the economy, effectively, and people losing their jobs. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Maria's absolutely right. I mean, this is a this is the cost of this, uh, of our response to the to the crisis. Is, has disproportionately fallen on young people. Unlike any recession I can remember, this 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 economic contraction, which is what it will become, has begun in the services sector of the economy, hospitality and retail, which disproportionately feature or intends to provide jobs for young people. So they're the frontline casualties of this. Uh, obviously, the social impacts are greatest for you know, young people. I mean, for for a, you know, middle-aged sort of person like me who can work from home and doesn't actually much like socialising anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, this is—it's not overly inconvenient to actually be locked down. But for your average young person who can't go to can't go to uni, um, can't go out socialising, can't play sport, have lost their job. You know, and if they're in a if they're in if they're at home with their parents and they have to rely more on their parents, if they're in a share house, they're probably doing it uh, really tough. I mean, the burden really has fallen on them and the burden is going to continue to fall on them over the next 30 years because of the they're the taxpayers of the 2020s and 30s and 40s they're going to be bearing this fiscal burden for a long time to come so they're doing an awful lot for essentially for older Australians yes this virus does affect younger people but we know the numbers tell us that this is disproportionately hitting older people um, in terms of health Anna Greta, the uh, Financial Times has written a, an interesting editorial along these lines where it talks about the, the virus disproportionately taking out the elderly but the economic uh, shutdown and uh, the, the, the implications from that having a, uh, a, you know, a similarly devastating effect on, uh, on young people or on those at the bottom end of the income distribution curve, people who are vulnerable, who, whose toehold in the economy uh, is not strong, who are perhaps uh, casual and and so forth. So it is really a, a big concern, isn't it, the sort of social aspect of this? It's not something we can easily dismiss. No, absolutely. And so it, it's an, an opportunity for us to be all thinking very much about issues to do with equity uh, and justice within our society. Um, it is an opportunity as we're discussing, you know, the economic reframing as we recover from the coronavirus epidemic. We, we are in a position to potentially re really look at these issues um, of intergenerational justice uh, and equity and the ways in which we might be better supportive to those uh, who have historically not done as well. I think the, the opportunities for really significant change um, are, are quite profound. Uh, there's a lot of us sitting at home enjoying time with our family and enjoying a slightly slower life. We, we should be trying to encourage discussions around what it is about this period which is beneficial and the way in which we want to see uh, the society that we're in emerging at the end of this epidemic. I think one of the things that is currently really under-discussed is the disproportionate gender impact of this, right? Like services, retail, these disproportionately employ women. Um, Childcare is an issue that is disproportionately affecting women. We've seen rates of people calling up domestic violence services surge. And the reality of managing a home and, and the domestic sphere now that everyone is there is still something that disproportionately affects women. And I think this is something that we haven't sort of discussed enough. And I just wonder whether or not, you know, 
one can really take back free childcare once it's been given, given the sort of disproportionate effect that it has on on women in the workplace and whether or not we might see a change around how we discuss what the state's role is going to be going forward, given that this is such a a big systemic shock coming after at least a decade of the disintegration of the old policy paradigm. Like this is precisely the time when big changes happen. Some of them may be good. Some of them may be terrifying. It's a fascinating point you make about um, about free childcare, for example, because I think one of the uh, you know glaring realities coming out of this sudden change in everything that we do and the way the economy is working or not working and the way we are all in our homes and and doing things differently. One of the things that's coming out of it is we're getting a, a reframing of who does the important work in our communities, and there's a pretty interesting correlation between quite a number of people who do very valued work who get paid bugger all let's face it who don't get paid well who aren't doing well out of uh, out of the economy obviously uh, that goes to uh, people like hospital cleaners but it goes to you know uber drivers it goes to the truck drivers that are supplying the supermarkets which are keeping the food up to us it goes to teachers it goes to early childhood ed- educators in 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 so-called childcare centers uh and obviously it goes to nurses i mean the the there are whole numbers of people who are doing critical things which are essential which which the, this government has had to recognize are essential to the f- basic functioning of the economy uh and one wonders whether that might help us all in a reframing of the value of those people's contributions and how they ought to be remunerated. So I think these are really, really important questions for us all to be considering. You know, what is the important? What are the important things that we can all enjoy doing with our time? What should we be valuing in our society? And how do we we design our economic relationships in a way that allow us to be kind, to foster togetherness, to see a collaboration, uh, to work in a society where we are actually uh, all represented in some way, shape, or form? We address some of the issues with um, within inequity and the intergenerational uh, problems with justice, or uh, in fact, uh, much broader than that. It's a, so it's a great opportunity for reflection this period, uh, sitting at home looking after children or sitting at home on your own. Um, and I, I guess for many people we're seeing a, a tremendous amount of uh, background anxiety in the community. And I think one of the ways in which we can contend with anxiety if we think about the work that's been done in climate change space is that thinking of, about action and how we might take some some involvement, some participation in this process might help us all to deal with the mental health effects of this, which no doubt will be affecting many of us. Bernard, do you you've, you've been around for a long time, as as indeed I have, uh, you know, commentating on on national politics, public affairs. Do you have any sense of um, whether these whether what we're talking about now is um, overly optimistic that that idea that we're in this sort of cathartic moment and that um, society might actually change for the better as a result of this crisis or are you a bit more cynical than that? Well, I'm not sure if I'm more cynical. I probably am, but um, <laughs> I, I'm hearing a lot of I'm hearing a lot of things that I heard 10, 12 years ago in the wake of the financial crisis about how that would be a permanent change in, in economies. Now, 
and, and, and in, in areas like fiscal policy. Now, that turned out to be true, but not in the way that anyone thought. I mean, I think the, the rise of populism in countries like the UK and the US is, is, a, is a delayed and lingering reaction to a lot of what happened between 2008 and 2010. Um, but a lot of the talk back then of a, of a resurgence of Keynesianism, a resurgence of, of uh, progressive policies never came to bear, I think. Well, we've for, got a resurgence of Keynesianism now. <laughs> well, uh, that's the thing. I mean, that's, as, as, you know, the, as, the, the, as the, the famous saying, we're all, you know, everyone in, in a foxhole, everyone's a Keynesian. Uh, yeah, the moment yeah. that a crisis comes back, then no matter how, uh, how monetarist people are or, or you know, no matter how dogged they are as an enthusiast of Milton Keynes, of uh, Milton, Milton Keynes, Milton John Friedman. Maynard Keynes, yeah. Yes, I don't think it's to me ardent enthusiast of Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes, isn't um, that a place? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Not a particularly nice place. Um, but uh, no, that's, they, 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 no matter how, uh, how ardently neoliberal they are, they, for the most part, they'll turn to the government and say, help, um, when the pressure's on. I think th- th- there's reason to think that this time around will be different to uh, to uh, ten years ago, I think partly because we've got a second dose of the same lesson, and this time um, it's conservative governments um, who are who are resorting to extraordinary fiscal measures, whereas it's the, it's the Tories uh, over in the UK or the coalition here on a much bigger scale than we saw in the aftermath of the financial crisis. That's a really good point, actually, Bernard, because it, 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 make, it makes me wonder, and I'll be interested in everyone's thoughts on this, would a – I mean, everyone expected Bill Shorten to win the last election. Scott Morrison came through in, um, you know, surprising circumstances. It was a big shock. The polls all said it was going the other way. There were very few people who predicted it, right? So suddenly we've got this government. It's It, it arrives. It doesn't really have much of an agenda gets its tax cuts through very quickly uh, and then, you know, basically there's a fair bit of thumb twiddling. I know what we'll do, we'll beat up the unions and uh, get some religious freedom bill happening. And, you know, this this pretty much framed the, 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 uh, the agenda of the government. This thing's come along and has, you know, fundamentally changed all of that. I just wonder, had it gone the way the polls suggested, would we be in a worse position in the sense that, the bipartisanship we're seeing from Labor, you know, could 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 the would the coalition have stood by as an opposition and allowed a Labor government to spend one hundred and thirty billion dollars on direct wage subsidies, for example? I, I think there's there's very little chance they would have been happy to wave through mm. one hundred and thirty billion dollars. I think the, maybe the first two packages, perhaps, but going going that that extraordinary extent that that. Scott Morrison went in the third package. I don't think the the coalition in, in opposition would ever have balked. Oh, sorry. Would, 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 I think they would have completely balked uh, at that. I mean, well, the, they the, would the have seen coalition. it as part of a piece. Sorry to cut you off, but they would have seen it as you know just part of a piece of the sort of excess that they claimed had, had framed Labor's yeah, response yeah, yeah. to the GFC. Exactly. They, they, this is this is you know this is what Labor does uh, is is run you know is run up these you know enormous bills and we have to we have to clean up the mess. So we would have just relived. Mm. In a way, what happened twelve years ago, despite the fact that over in the UK there's a Tory government sort of spending even much more mm. uh, than than we are uh, in in propping up um, uh, a government. I mean, but but this government, the Morrison government, also the Turnbull government to an extent before it, has also also went down 
a much more interventionist path than uh, the Howard government did. I mean, if you look at banking uh, after they were sort of drag kicking and screaming to a royal commission, they've, they've been implementing a very interventionist and highly regulatory regime there. Ditto for energy. Um, they're spending a lot, they're investing a lot in health, investing a lot in, in education when they re-embraced or embraced Gonski. So this is a coalition that for, you know, even though it looks very similar and in some ways has not moved on from the era of John Howard and, and Tony Abbott, is actually a very different creature in terms of its policies, um, much more interventionist, much more inclined to spend money. And um, I think that also tends to mean that what's happened this time around is probably going to stick, in, or much more likely to stick in a way that, you know, we, 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 as I said before, the, the mooted changes in the wake of the financial crisis never really did stick. We just kind of went, you know, the, the, the return to neoliberalism happened reasonably quickly. I just can't see that happening this time around. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I mean, this is a government that really has tried very, very, very hard not to raise new start, um, and they've been quite deliberate in their financial policies to not provide assistance to those at the bottom end of the spectrum. But I think if the parliamentary uh, balance was in the other direction, that we would still be having a stimulus that's along the same lines. I think the optics of having people outside Centrelink uh, looking, looking for government assistance makes it really, really hard to oppose any of the financial measures that have been put in place by any side of government. Um, I've no doubt that all of us who are speaking on this podcast today have met people, have friends, have uh, have close members of the family even who may have lost work or lost income. Um, this is a deeply, deeply personal experience, the, uh, the economics of the coronavirus epidemic. It's a different financial crisis to, to the uh, 2009 event. Uh, the, the drying up of both supply and demand at the same time is quite an extraordinary thing for a government to have to contend with. And I, and I think that's how the narrative runs, is that this is totally different to what we've contended with before. I think the, the important thing, though, is that, one, we, we have been living with the aftershocks of the GFC for, for more than a decade. Um, we... we as a society came off a period of extraordinary once in a century style growth. Um, and we've all sort of adjusted or been struggling to adjust to the reality of that before the, the coronavirus. So that sense, that discourse about, well, something is not quite right in the kingdom of Australia um, has been there for quite a while. But perhaps more importantly is that this government is being driven by events and they are responding to events. And, that doesn't mean that ideology will go away. I mean, that's already quite clear in the the way the government has chosen to respond to um, this crisis and which policy levers they've chosen to pull and under which frameworks and under which reasonings and, and those that they haven't. But just because they are sort of being pushed by um, events, it, it may be the case that they have to do things that they would never have kind of considered, but they've also got a whole bunch of choices that I think are kind of predictable for us to sort of think about, like what are they going to do about the tax cuts they've already legislated, for example, mm. you know, um, given the the, the the choices they have to actually pay down debt, you know, how much more can, like, is it really feasible for them to continue to sort of screw down welfare recipients when people who are not traditionally on welfare are likely to still be unemployed in a year's time? 
Well, that's all right. I mean, I think the uh, the point you make about the uh, the change that the government's going to have to undergo in terms of its thinking about welfare is a is a really interesting one. I guess what I was kind of thinking about in terms of the politics of it was that, um, you know, it took a Labor government really to do the kind of um, industrial relations reform that we saw through the through the early and mid nineties. It took a conservative government, I think, to successfully do the the crackdown on on firearms, on you know, to do gun control. Um, in a sense, it takes governments uh, of the other stripe, as it were, or of the same stripe, really, but you know, um, a- acting on behalf of uh, the community against their own what might be seen as a vested interest. And I think, to some extent. We were fortunate that this came along with a conservative government in place because I do think the, uh, you know, going to Bernard's point, I do think the chance of there being political consensus on all aspects of this um, spending, uh, given the GFC record, is fairly low. I think that the chances are that there would have been a lot more discord about it and to that extent there may have been some greater political nervousness about dialing in the sort of um, uh, protection that we've seen uh, you know put into the economy so perhaps in that sense and I only say in that sense but you know perhaps in that sense um, those on the, uh, at the, at the at the most vulnerable end of the labor market uh, uh, we're lucky that that's the way the politics shake, shook out. It is a rather damning indictment of the coalition's behaviour over the last 12 years. That is devastating. Well, I think you can make that assessment reasonably can, fairly yes. on the basis of uh, its constant uh, carping about the GFC. I mean, Australia was one of the few countries that actually steered around a recession in the GFC. As we've noted on this podcast before, in the middle of these crises, you're only ever dealing with fragments of information. You don't know what comes next. That was the nature of the sort of GFC as it rolled out. It was unclear the extent to which it would go, what the economic fallout would be from it. And uh, Treasury advised the government, you know, go hard, go early, go households, get money into people's pockets, get demand happening in the economy. And, uh, and of course, the government spent a fair bit of money doing that. There was those checks and there was also the infrastructure programs and the like. Uh, the coalitions never stopped bleating on about it, uh, even though it was successful. There were some elements of it, in hindsight, that you can say were uh, were not good, uh, and clearly some aspects of it just were, were wasteful. But you can't know that at the time. There will be many aspects of what has been done here that will emerge to be wasteful, but you can't know it ahead of time. And if you go through the normal processes of government, well, that's not what you do in a crisis, because if you do, you'll be about six or eight months behind what is needed, and that, that's the path to, you know, depression. And isn't that interesting just to think that if you go back to 2009, most of us wouldn't have had direct experience with people who had, uh, you know, financial uh, devastation, and that was one of the extraordinary things about the Australian response is that we didn't see the devastation that was seen across large parts of the world. This is a different crisis. This is one where we all know someone. We know someone who might have had the virus. We know someone who's been locked in their house for a long period of time. We know someone who's lost their job. We know someone who might be losing their business. Uh, So this is a much more personal experience than last time. 
Yeah, and I think what's going to be really fascinating also is, and 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 is quite a worry, is the extent to which the private economy, the the private sector, is different, is transformed as a result of this. I th- I was talking to a a friend yesterday who has a business, and his business has been absolutely savaged by uh, by this sudden shutdown. Uh, he expects to take a significant loss, uh, uh, but nonetheless had a, a pretty upbeat attitude, talking about bringing coming back after the shutdown. In a much smaller and more modest form, using uh, you know the digital technology in a much more efficient way, hiring fewer people, and essentially running the same operation but in a much more modest way. Now, you might say, well, that's a great thing for efficiency in the economy, but it doesn't sound like a great thing for uh, you know for a rebound in the labour market. And we expect the same sorts of things to happen to you know the big employers we know about, like uh, Virgin and Qantas, who have stood down you know the bulk of their workforce. It's hard to imagine that they'll be uh, rehiring all of those people. In fact, Virgin's been quite clear that at least a thousand of those people won't be rehiring. And that, that this story is going to be written a million times across the economy. So, uh, going back to the question about New Start, uh, as as it was called erroneously, um, I, I can't imagine them uh, being able to. That they may not keep it at exactly the same level, but I can't imagine them taking it back to where it was. No, I, I mean, there's a, there's a, I mean the 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 new new start is a, a peculiar case because literally everyone, other than the government, including John Howard, including elements of the government itself, including yeah, the Nats, Joyce, yeah. uh, and nationals, uh, the business council, business council. You know, it's the first time I'll say anything good about the business council. They've been pushing for a new start increase for years, so there was virtually universal consensus that it was too low. And now, as you said earlier, the government's admitted that it was, you know, it is, or what was, too low, and yeah, there is. I mean, there, there is certainly not going to be any snapback in terms of employment. Um, it's going to be a, a, a long, slow grind for a lot of businesses. I mean, the, the head of Air New Zealand uh, a couple of weeks back said when he announced that they were basically shutting up shop that he expected in a year's time they would only have 30% of their current employment. Now, that's in a year's time. Um, not every business is going to be like the airlines. The airlines are front and centre uh, in terms of, of the impact. But that gives you an idea of just how slow some uh, economies are actually going to be and how many businesses are operating at the moment and discovering that, oh, hey, hang on, well, we can actually keep on ticking over at a reasonable level with everyone working from home. Mm. Do we actually need all that office space? Do yeah. we actually need our travel budget like that? Um, uh, they're going to start thinking about well, let's let, let's give up part of our office lease. Um, that's going to have flow through implications for for commercial property market and for the banks. Uh, it's going to have obviously have lingering issues for uh, for airlines and the travel market. So there are all sorts of areas where implications that we don't really understand um, have a long way to go yet, and. It's very, very difficult for policymakers because they're just as much in the dark. They can, they can speculate, but their guess is as good as ours in a sense about what kind of future a lot of individual sectors of the economy have over the medium term um, in terms of how this has affected them and what, how they choose to respond to, to how it's unfolded. 
So I really want to put forward a pitch for imagination. We we are contending with a crisis that we've not been through before. Um, the economics of this particularly are quite singularly unique in contemporary history. Uh, it's time for us to imagine what might happen at the end of this. So the, the patterns of employment, the patterns of our social behaviour, everything is changed. Um, and we can either assume that things might go back to how they were before, or we could use this time uh, to really foster imagination about how we can do things differently and potentially better uh, in the world that we make as we recover. That's a very excellent point on which to finish, Anna Greta. Thanks so much for that. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, uh, it was going to be an excellent discussion, and I think it really has been a very rich and rewarding one. Uh, thank you to Anna Greta Hunter, Bernard Keane, of course, Maria Taflaga, who's with me each week. Uh, and uh, before I go, can I just say that later in the week in our Democracy Sausage Extra series, we'll get a picture from the UK and Europe with two outstanding London-based guests, Elizabeth Ames and Sophia Gaston. And as well as uh, we'll look at the COVID response, we'll also uh, discuss the arrival of the new British Labour leader, Keir Starmer, which is uh, certainly going to change politics in the UK after the long, overly long and pretty pointless uh, Corbyn period. And next week in this space, Maria, on Democracy Sausage, we'll hear perspectives from Tim Costello and, and from Virginia Hausiger. And you were saying, Maria, earlier that, uh, um, you know, there's a very strong gendered aspect to this COVID crisis and the economic fallout. And, uh, Virginia will be, uh, very strong on that. So can I thank you all again for, uh, for being with us and, uh, if you want to uh, contact us, then by all means contact us via Twitter. That's at Apps Policy Forum, APPS Policy Forum, and the Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. Uh, until next week, goodbye for now. Bye. Wash your hands. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.